Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel, and my guest today is Josh Green. He is a creative marketing and earned media specialist. Josh has done some super, super cool things in his career, and a very, very big part of this conversation is talking about Philadelphia, unfortunately, but he came up with the Philly Philly idea when it comes to Bud Light. He worked with Bud Light for a little while, and what he really did, which we had a lot of fun talking about, was the Bud Light Victory Fridge. Josh created it essentially with his team and his partners and they put it into idea and they put it into implementation. And I was in Cleveland. I have a picture with the Bud Light fridge, which was awesome. And shout out to Josh for giving me that. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Josh Green. Today, I'm for the love of sports. My name is Michael Raziel. I have my man, Josh Green on. He is a creative marketing and earned media specialist. He was a VP at Weber Shandwick. He uh, worked at Catalyst PR, which turned into IMG, which turned into WME. And he even started his career as a sports TV reporter. Josh, how are you doing today, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No, the pleasure, I promise you, is all mine. We're going to have a lot of fun, especially towards the the back half of this conversation. Uh, very excited to talk about some of the stuff you did with the beer category and uh, combining that with sports. But the first question I have for everybody, Josh, on For the Love of Sports is, why do you love sports so much? So I, I grew up pretty much uh, where, where sports was as close to being part of the DNA as possible. I, I grew up in the outskirts of Boston in the early 80s. So I remember uh, just listening to Celtics broadcasts uh, in my room as I fell asleep. Uh, eventually, somehow, my dad uh, stumbled his way into a partial season ticket share for the Celtics games and, you know, in, in the Larry Bird era. So for the bulk of the 80s, I would get to a handful of Celts games and snuck into the uh, NBA Finals in 84, Game 5, the famous Heat game where Kareem is taking oxygen on the sidelines, uh, went to Larry Bird's uh steel game against Isaiah in 87. So, uh, and in 91, when, when bird, uh, was concussed against the Pacers in game five, but still rebounded to lift the, the seas over, over the Pacers. So it was part of the DNA. Um, my town actually also abuts a Foxborough. So uh, at the time getting into the Patriots game was, was rather easy and ignominious. So we would, uh, we would literally listen to the game on the radio because it wasn't sold out. So the home games were blacked out. Uh, if you would believe that for, for pretty much all of the 80s. So we would listen to the game. And if it was close, we'd just drive over to the stadium and they would let you in for free in the second half. Um, and it was just anything they could do to fill the stands. And we would take advantage. Isn't it crazy how times have changed? <laughs> it Isn't is, it crazy, no, man? No, no one believes that Patriot story. But uh, but I, I, I say for, for, for Jets fans and other long-suffering NFL fans, you never know when that time may come and, and, and fortunes may change. You never know. I'm a Giants fan, so I just want to make sure that that part is very Thank you for clarifying. Yes. No, that, don't that, worry. I hate the Jets and the Patriots. I hate the Jets and the Patriots, so don't worry. I'm on your side some of the time. But no, it's um, it's very it – is, it is funny. I always love talking to people that are a little older in Boston because, again, you know, you had the Celtics at least growing up, right? 
but the Patriots, man, they're obviously cream of the crop when it comes to the NFL over the last 20 years. And the thing I, I love, I, you know, I don't know how much you pay attention to Gary V Gary Vaynerchuk. He's a cool mm-hmm. guy, but I always yeah. love when he's talking to younger Boston fans because he always talks about how the older Boston fans hate the younger Boston fans. Cause they don't know what it was like. Tom Brady was there for 20 years. Tom Brady led them to six Super Bowls. They were one of the best teams in the league constantly. And then it's always just kind of funny because older Boston fans like yourself have to remind everybody they let us into the game for free. They blacked out the games because no one would show up to the stadium. <laughs> right. Like it is just crazy how, as you said, you just never know what's uh, what's around the corner. It, it is crazy. I mean, the the entire identity of a Boston sports fan, I cannot relate to anybody who's grown up in the past 20 years. There, there was just this, this definitely deep ingrained thought that we would never see a championship team after Bird retired. Uh, and that lived out and lived on for a long time. Uh, we thought Drew Bledsoe was the savior. Great player, but that's yeah. how desperate we were for someone who could lift us from last place in the division. Mm-hmm. And, and we were thrilled to have Drew. But yeah, fortunes have changed. It is, it is pretty crazy. And I guess, um, you know, kudos to you guys. I'll take the, the two Giants championships without a doubt. <laughs> was, it's okay. But I, uh, I, was, I was in the stadium for both of them. Um, oh, no way. Very painful. That was painful. One of the, yeah, one, one of the perks of, of my last two tenures is that I, I do typically attend the Super Bowl. Um, so I've seen seen multiple Patriots victories over the years, but uh, two, three really tough losses, including the Eagles loss. But those Giants losses were devastating. 18 and one. So we'll, we'll leave <sighs> yeah. it there, man. I mean, you got to be it as an as a, an unbiased fan. If you can step back. That first game was incredible. The second one was weird, but that first game was just absolutely incredible. And, um, you know, I'm happy it went my way. I watch it once every year, especially with the Giants being as bad as they've been recently. (laughs) Go on to YouTube, watch the two hour long commercial free game. Remember what it was like, shed a tear and uh, move on with my life from there. So So. you you still so upon further viewing, you definitely agree that uh, Eli was in the grasp and the play should have been over. Right. That's it's clear. Well, it's a clear takeaway. Uh, yes, and I think the four offensive holdings on that play also could have been called. <laughs> exactly. But everything after that, man, right. like I, everything after that was pretty damn cool, if you ask me. And it was third down; it wasn't fourth down. So, right. worst comes to worst, he would have just done it the next play. But you're right. Um, so, so with that, I mean, you, you, you know, we, we're talking about sports a little bit, and your career actually started as a sports reporter. So you were going to get, you know, you've been to multiple Super Bowls. I'm assuming in the beginning of your career, you thought it'd be on the sideline. You thought maybe yeah. you'd be sitting next to Joe Buck, right? Or next to Troy Aikman. So tell me what it was like and uh, why you wanted to get in on that side of the business at first. Yeah, I, I think, um, as, as I mentioned in the opening anecdote about listening to Celtics games on the radio, um, one of the things I first connected with was play-by-play announcers. Uh, it was that, and also there were some legendary local sports broadcasters. So our version of, of the Len Berman or the Marv Albert were guys like uh, Bob Lobel, if if, if if you look him up, he was someone who spent 30 years at the local NBC affiliate, but he became sort of the narrator and the guy who was our only way of getting the highlights and the post-game reactions from players. So I just love the guys who could tell the story and bring the story to me. And that carried through when I went to college. I actually uh, did play-by-play for the men's basketball team at, at Stanford for two years. So we traveled with the team, uh, went to every game, flew with with the entire entourage, and really got a taste of what it felt like to be a part of, of a team and sports sort of uh, production. Uh, and then parlayed that into the local uh, sports broadcasting. Uh, I did actually get a chance to cover the Super Bowl as a reporter. Yeah, I was working in Bakersfield, California in 2003. 
uh, and that was the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus the Raiders Super Bowl in San Diego. So John Gruden beats his old team. Uh, terrible game. Uh, but <laughs> but, I, but I do recall um, it was one of those moments after the game. I'm, I'm, I'm literally standing right behind Peter King waiting to go into the visit the uh, the locker room uh, of the you know of the, of the bucks so um that was pretty cool uh a very jubilant warren sap knocked me off my rocker as he paraded through the locker room um very jubilant and very unclothed but uh but but it was great that is awesome i mean how many how many super bowls have you been to i 11 or 12 uh, okay I, I, yeah so it's it's in that range all right, not that bad. Not not that bad. <laughs> Very lucky. I was gonna say what, like almost twenty percent of all Super Bowls you have seen, if my math is you know, very quick math is right. right. But good for you. I mean, obviously it's 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 very interesting, just kind of the career arc and the career path. So you go to a Super Bowl, you're essentially I mean, that is gotta be one of the coolest things in the world, especially that early on in your career. I mean, if someone started, if, if, you know, in the beginning of your career, you're starting to get incredible things like going to the Super Bowl, it's going to be very hard for me to want to leave that job. Um, obviously, understanding this was, you know, almost 20 years ago, this is a little different back then and kind of how the, you know, the internet really wasn't the, even anything yeah. close to what it is now where you and I can have this conversation while uh, during a pandemic. But what I guess, you know, even with those amazing opportunities coming to you so early in your career you ended up leaving and going into PR and I know you told me already it was the storytelling aspect but what exactly was it about not wanting to do and and you know go through that incredible grind of being a sports reporter to make it to the top where Peter King is even though you were standing right next to him I, I think that's really interesting yeah it, it's a great question I think definitely to put it in the proper context it certainly was a different time so 20 years ago Really, it was a much, much more fractured, contained and linear path to the top. And along the way, a lot of people just would fall off that tree as they tried to climb it. Um, so I put in about eight years as, as a broadcaster. And that's Super Bowl in 2003. I began my career in early 97, uh, my, my first on-air job in 97. Mm -hmm. So I had been in it for a while. Um, I actually did interview uh, at ESPN. I was a finalist for an ESPN anchor position in 2003. Um, they brought five of us in on different days and they told us up front when, when I came in, they told me we're bringing in five of you. We're going to hire one. The rest of you might never get the shot again. And, and we don't know. If, if Thanks guys. Exactly. They said, they said, embrace this moment, embrace the fact that you're in the room right now. We recognize how hard it is and you should feel good about that. But being here is no guarantee of future success and just know that up front. So they're very candid. And that was my experience. I, I wound up not getting the position. Who, and, who did get that position? Because I think you know exactly who it is, right? Absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, Steve Bunin, uh, who uh, spent a long time actually at the mothership about, I think he was an anchor for about 10 years. And I, if I remember correctly, not that I'm stalking his career or, or uh -huh. doing anything untoward. But I think he's at Fox Sports Southwest, somewhere in Texas, uh, doing doing broadcasting still. Uh, from what I heard, a uh, really nice guy uh, and talented. And they, yeah, he they took him for that position. But I put in about another year and a half after that, grinding, trying to find a spot. And it just, I wasn't finding the, the right fit. And even eight years in, I'm making $24,000 a year. I'm working nights and weekends. 
just started to have to have those conversations about mm-hmm. with yourself about what the future really is and what you value in terms of what's possible and, and life choices. And so, you know, again, you know, I think the, the, you know, you know shout out Steve Bunin. I hope he's doing well, but we'll, we'll be paying attention to him. Don't worry. I promise everybody out there that. And so with that, like how, how, how do you come to terms with something like that? You put in so much time, so much effort and energy. You said all these nights and weekends, you got to go to a Super Bowl already. Like how, how do these conversations start happening? And, and at what point did you kind of come to the realization like, all right, I can storytell in another way that would probably allow me to make more money and do cooler things such as go to, I don't know, 11 other Super Bowls. But like how, how do those conversations internally start happening? Uh, they started to naturally evolve. Uh, I actually was up for a position in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I, I, I was offered the job as uh, I think the number three sports reporter for the CBS station there. So again, it wasn't a real glory position, but I went there. Um, as I'm leaving, they pretty much indicated that I was going to get the job. And I'm flying home from Knoxville to Bakersfield, California. That's about a four, you know, a four stop the flight. flight yeah. four seconds, right? That's a full day of, of, of navigating travel. And I was just at the airport on the way back. And I just, I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't excited about the potential to uproot and once again, move across the country and go to Knoxville. Um, I was grateful for the chance. But again, I, w- I thought I was going to be signing up for another three years of financial struggle um, and maybe getting that shot at, at, at the big time that I craved. So without putting any undue pressure in what was going through my head, I just knew that at that time I, I had the realization that Let's explore something new and think about other ways you can find fulfillment and and maybe add a little bit of normalcy to to a life pattern and start to to have some of those things that you also want out of your life. And so with you being on the media side and the reporting side, how easy was it to kind of sit on the other side of the table? How 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 often does that transition happen? As you said, a lot of people are falling off that tree when they're climbing to the top and they have to go somewhere. And you put in eight years in the media. So it's not like you can just go into any market and be like, well, hey, I've, I've been a professional for eight years. You should hire me at this amount of money and I should do this job. So how how does that transition from media to public relations or and marketing that allows you to not just start completely entry level again. Cause you know, we all, you know, the 30 year old guy at the entry level job is, yep. you know, again, you need to make money. You got to do your thing, support your family. So what, how, how does that transition um, happen? I guess. It was, it was a combination of all these things that, that you've brought up. Uh, it was definitely a curiosity when mm-hmm. I would interview people, they value that skill easily translatable. And, and clearly I saw that as soon as I, I made that career shift, I was able to, to, to really have an appreciation for how we're talking to the media from an agency or brand standpoint. But I, I did have to accept positions that, yeah, most 30 year olds were not accepting. It wasn't entry level, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't where I expected to be. But uh, I think the experience definitely got me in the door, gave me credibility, allowed me to establish myself. And from there naturally demonstrated that link. I think it's, it's uh, very translatable and very applicable and it became uh, a pretty clear way of how I approached the job. I leaned on my experience a lot and mm-hmm. still do. And and that I do think clients saw value in that. Uh, I had a lot of friends in the media just who were casual friends that allowed me to 
make more contacts mm-hmm. and, and get my my clients in front of media. But just the 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 sensibility of what was a good story versus what was a brand trying to fit in in an awkward way and 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 trying too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of something the media side would probably it was very evident and very clear to you right. coming. It's like, oh gosh, guys, come on, this is authenticity <laughs> is number one, and if it's not authentic, we can all see it, smell it, feel it, taste it. It's pretty obvious. So. With that, I know you had a couple jobs along the way, but I think your first big job, if I'm not mistaken, came with Catalyst, which eventually then turned into IMG, very, very well-known agency, which then eventually turned into WME, another very, very well-known agency. And, and you got, like, first off, the M&A part of it, how frustrating and annoying is that process? I've personally never been through it, but I mean, just multiple ones going from one gigantic agency yeah. to another. Like, how How did you deal with that, especially kind of early on in your second career? Yeah, you, you really do have to rely on leadership and the folks who are shepherding that kind of transition. I think a lot of the tone is set by them because the first thing you hear about someone who you don't know, a company you're not really familiar with is coming in and taking over, you assume the worst. And, and mm-hmm. you certainly know that those cases often wind up with people being let go. Um in my case, that that didn't happen. Uh, those transitions were, I mean, fairly seamless, but also they felt really complementary. Um, when IMG acquired Catalyst, IMG was adding this PR specialty that they did not have internally. So it became an asset for them to pitch that, hey, we now have this capability. We have sports PR experts that now can be part of mm-hmm. what you're already doing with IMG. So they saw us as a real value and that came through. Uh, I, I think the folks that took over our unit, um, the IMG consulting branch uh, absorbed us. Those guys were great. Uh, David Aberton, who was really a titan in, in the sports industry. Uh, he was someone who made us feel comfortable. And uh, my boss, uh, Brett Werner, who's over at uh, MWW, MWW right now, he leads that agency. Uh, Brett, founded Catalyst with with a few others, and he made sure that the transition was also smooth. So I think just trusting your leadership was the lesson that I learned and that maintained throughout. And what's it like from the client perspective, right? Because you assume the worst, which is probably, hey, I'm, I might lose my job. But wh- how, how do you kind of not allow that negative energy to then go from you to the clients because right. they need to be happy and understanding through this whole process as well? Because if you lose them, then you probably really do lose your job at that point. That is true. Uh, I think client relationships work best when they're very personal. So the first thing you do is let them know that it's still the same team. So the same faces and names that you were talking to before are the same people who will be handling your business moving forward. The upside is that they have access to more things should they want them, uh, should they want some of the benefits of a large agency like IMG or WME. And maybe make some more inroads in entertainment or other WME properties, for example, that's available. But at the core, it's the same group of folks doing the same work uh, on an individual level. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. Again, just kind of making sure that everyone understands business card might look a little different, but it's still me. I'm still Josh Green. I'm still here for you. So I think that part is very important. And so at this, I'm going to call it one company because it at this stop, there we go. At this stop in your career, there were a couple really interesting companies you were able to work with. Under Armour, as well as Timex, uh, I saw were, were a couple. I mean, Under Armour, I wore, where am I? I wore this side, um, wore it for you today, just to let you know. I mean, 
got to got to represent got to represent the brand and so with working with so many different companies in that agency format i'm sure it's a lot more interesting because you can let you you got to do a lot of different things at once but how do you almost compartmentalize because the the market for timex is a little different than the market for under armor but in this case we're still utilizing sports and we're still utilizing the pr aspect of it so how do you kind of differentiate and make sure you can kind of shut one part of your brain off to turn the other part on I, I do think that's what most agency folks will tell you uh, in terms of the big difference between working on the client side and the agency side is exactly that. The fact that you're working with multiple brands and it keeps the excitement level there in the sense that you are switching your brain a little bit from client to client. Uh, I think on the agency side, you're so laser focused on the singular brand mission and narrative that you tend to exist in a bit of a bubble, which can be fine. And, and, and a lot of people excel in that role. Agency just opens that up and allows you to feel fresh. And I actually liked that. It just, it, it, it did keep me challenged, but also exposed me to different things. And, and it added a little variety to the, to the day. Yeah. Right. I mean, it gets kind of boring doing the same thing over and over again. So now this way you're able to be a little bit more creative in a little different ways. And one thing I've always Correct. read, at least in, in marketing specifically is learning what other industries and what other companies are doing, even if they have nothing to do with you, you can still probably pull one or two things away that then allows you to utilize that at what you're doing. So again, at the agency side, on the agency side, you're able to kind of look at these two different things. So with, um, with that, like, how did you go about utilizing your network and your relationship within both of these two major brands who are, they're both very ingrained in the sport. Under Armour, I think is, is much more obvious, but Timex, if I'm not mistaken, they sponsor a lot and they partner with a lot of different leagues and teams and players to get their message and to get their, their amplification out there. How do you kind of go about those two different companies specifically from, from your experiences? So when I joined Catalyst initially, and this is the end of 2008, really Under Armour was just coming onto the scene. So mm -hmm. it's clearly a growth brand. Their mission is trying to gain awareness and be the disruptor in the sports category. And we were on this rocket ship of a growth trajectory with them. So that just, that kind of framed the way we did things a lot mm -hmm. of the times was the fact that this is the hottest brand going and we were at the very beginning of that acceleration. So as they entered a new sport, we were just busting through the doors. Hey, we're, we're football. Now we're into, now we're making running shoes. Now we're in basketball. Now we're going to dominate golf with Jordan Spieth and, and other, and star apparel. So, uh, I think just the, the life cycle of a company led itself to so many, uh, exciting opportunities that we took advantage of. Uh, I think for me, the, the most natural thing was that, Obviously, football is part of Under Armour's mm -hmm. DNA. So initially, I'm going right out to the NFL Combine and the Senior Bowl, and I'm seeing people that I know. I'm seeing people yeah. in the media who are, who are peers. And that just, again, adds credibility with the client, but also makes it easier for me to, to get my sea legs mm -hmm. uh, and to make that transition. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, Under Armour was a, was a wild ride and, and really got to see it from the ground floor. Timex was a brand that uh, needed to reinvigorate itself. So it wasn't as much about uh, coming in and blowing the doors off with Timex. Mm. It was making people remember why they felt good about it. And it was almost more of a nostalgic uh, approach to them while still having credibility as, as a modern brand. Uh, and, they, and they were also distance running was really their 
their core specialty in terms of athlete partnerships. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, from distance running to triathlons and the Ironman, um, it was a different audience. And just the way that particular fan base spoke to each other, mm-hmm. you, could, you could see the differences versus the the NFL or an NBA fan that was rapidly uh, becoming a fan of Under Armour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely, you know, especially Under Armour in 2008, as you said, it's rocket ship at that point in time. It's actually really interesting. I had Rob Narvez on, uh, he oh, yeah. was at uh, Under Armour for, I think during that same time you were yeah. helping them out. So he was, he was awesome. He's got some great stories too. So if you haven't already, everybody listening, go check out his episode. And then you bring up the Iron Man. Uh, I spoke with Bob Babbitt recently of uh, Bob Babbittville. And he, uh, he's he been doing the Iron Man thing since the late 70s, I think. I think he did the third one uh, out in Oahu, I think. Could get the city wrong in Hawaii, but absolutely loved it. He's a super yeah. cool dude. He was he was a lot of fun as well. And yeah, just talk. He he definitely had a little bit of a different attitude than, uh, than Rob did. Both very, very good people. Don't get me wrong. Definitely. <laughs> little different on the uh, on the conversational spectrum but i know at while you were at i don't know exactly which company it was at this point during this stop 2014 the winter olympics you won an award uh for something about crisis i think if i'm not mistaken i saw those words in really big letters and i was like oh no kind of got to <laughs> ask about this one because you did something good in a really bad time so if you don't t- mind telling us with the olympics very important to me as well tell tell us a little bit about what happened in 2014 and how you were able to uh spin that in the right direction yeah so this is uh 2014 in sochi and uh the the big moment there as far as our as far as under armor was concerned was the they were the uh the official partner of the u.s speed skating team and uh the team was posting some disappointing times throughout the the early parts of the competition in, in the olympics and there was some thought among team members that the new under armor suits that they were wearing might be contributing to that. Um, oh. Not the thing a brand wants to hear, um, but really, uh, that's where I saw my client at their best in terms of transparency, accountability, action, and really that that award is 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 in conjunction with the client, uh, their leadership, which which I folded into uh, and and try to contribute to, uh, was just getting the athletes through that experience and doing everything that we could to be advocates for them. So um, it got pretty ugly in terms of the way the athletes were speaking and just literally they were cutting their own holes in, in, in the, in the uniforms to see if maybe there was a drag effect that somehow the uniforms were inadvertently creating. Uh, They were musing openly about using older uniforms in competition uh, despite what had been approved. And the thing that Under Armour established really right away, and it came from Kevin Plank, the, the founder, was we are never going to go against the athletes. We will always support them, whatever they want, no matter uh, how it reflects on us as a company. And if it makes us look bad in the short term, we serve them. Athletes are our currency. Athletes Improving athlete performance is our mission, and we will do whatever it takes to do that. So uh, we just had to navigate that that actual communications crisis. So this was like, this was leading the international news mm-hmm. on a daily basis uh, about the athlete's performance. Um, as it turned out, uh, one of the factors was that in the lead up to the Olympics, the athletes had done all their training at high elevation. And Sochi is a rare winter Olympics location that is at sea level. 
So the ice surface in Sochi was completely different and the atmospheric conditions were completely different than the training atmosphere that the athletes had uh, had been involved with in the lead up. So they had never really conducted the full training sessions that they normally would for Olympics, mirroring the conditions of the actual mm -hmm. Olympic Games. And I think the unfamiliarity with the track um, maybe led to some of their strategies not being what they thought they were. So ultimately, Under Armour agreed, change uniforms, go back to what you're comfortable with. And they still posted uh, times that were a little slower than they had expected. And really, um, I was working directly with U.S. speed skating with the, with the commissioner there, uh, with some of the other Olympic entities, and, and of course, Under Armour to just make sure that, hey, listen, we're here for the athletes, but we also want to be transparent about what, mm -hmm. what the truth is. And, and we, just, uh, we just did that. But I think the fact that the willingness to put ourselves out there was what contributed to uh, to all of us collectively winning that award to to navigate through something that was impacting stock prices, really leading to the most the most critical press that Under Armour had received, it probably since since its inception, and just making sure that hey, well, we're going to get through this by mm -hmm. doing what we believe in. And I think it's it's great as you said, you know, we at Under Armour athletes are the currency. I love how you said that because it's so true, right? If athletes are refusing to use your product, why would anybody like myself who hey, I want to, I, you know, I'm not a long distance runner, but you know, it's, it's good to go outside and go for a run every once in a while. I'm not going to use Under Armour if the athletes that need to use it can't. And so how do you, you know, as you said, it was, you, you get that award for navigating that space. How do you have those conversations though? And how do you kind of let the you know, as you said, we're supporting the athletes. Go back to your old uniforms. Do whatever the heck you need to do. But how do you make sure that, hey, like, this isn't us, though. This is kind of their fault. And how do you do that in an elegant enough way that people are like, oh, okay, so they just didn't do the right thing. So it's not Under Armour's fault. And now the athletes aren't. Like, there's so many different ways. You can come out and be angry about it. And sure. that's going to make you look worse, even though you were right. You know, you know so how yeah. did you go about making sure that you were navigating the space in the best possible way? Yeah, I, I think, and, and I've learned a lot more um, about crisis communications and, and the experience there more holistically over the years as well. Um, it really is accountability and transparency. Uh, you have to talk truthfully to your partners and you have to understand what's really happening. And no, no, one, no one benefits from people uh, running away from the mm -hmm. truth or f being too scared to disclose the truth. So it, it, it's just establishing that up front that, hey, we're going to do everything we can to help you, but we're also going to be truthful together and we're going to give you the tools. Like what we want most is for you to su succeed as an athlete. That's it. And, and I think that that's just how the, the tone is set. And I think even to throw on top of it, you even brought it up with the stock price, right? You're a publicly traded company and this yeah. is the Winter Olympics. So, you know, only, I don't know give or take 2 billion people were able to watch it or something. 2 billion people did watch it. How, again, understanding that you want to get out there quickly and be like, hey, hey, it's not our fault. So do you have USA Speed Skating come out and be like, hey, it actually isn't the uniforms. Under Armour is doing a great job. And that's where Under Armour can then come in and say, but we're still here to support. Like, like how do you make yeah. sure that multiple people don't lose their job and you know the stock price doesn't tank? Sure. Um, so we we certainly worked on the communication side of it uh, 
quite diligently every day. And we had joint statements with USA Speed Skating. There we go. With, okay. with, the, with the other entities. So working directly with those communication folks with input from the athletes. Um, it We wanted to make sure it never felt like a blame game. It, it wasn't – transparency was not to say, hey, listen, we did everything right. This is mm-hmm. on you. It was just more of we here's the science of the suits. They have been rigorously tested. That's indisputable. That said, if an athlete doesn't feel right, hey, we're working right now to fix it. It, it became very forward-looking even, even in current time. Even on a day-to-day level, it was, okay, here's what's happening today. Here's how we're going to help athletes today, tomorrow, and for the rest of the competition. And, uh, you know, reached a solution that the athletes felt, you know, that they wanted and they felt comfortable with. And, and we were there to support them. But, but even in... Yeah, there, there was no there was no end zone spiking mm. celebrations of hey, listen, it's not our fault. No, yeah. it's, it's 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 always there's always responsibility if if, mm-hmm. if your athlete partner doesn't perform, you take that hit because you're invested in them emotionally and financially. Mm-hmm. Accountability, it is yeah, uh, very very important, and understanding that hey, it might not be our we might not be responsible for it, but we'll be accountable for it. Correct, and making sure we're doing everything what we possibly can. And I think that's a great way to go about it. And you know what? If I had a vote, Josh. I think I would have voted for you too. So kudos to you and, and the, your team over there, obviously Under Armour and taking that up. So now, now let's talk about the fun stuff. Um, sure. So you move on from WME. I think that's where we're at right now. You move on to Weber Shandwick. Uh, great name, by the way. Really great name, by the way. And so <laughs> with that, I mean, one of the one of the the opportunities, one of the the brands, one of the companies you got to work with was AB InBev. So in case anybody, I don't think I said it yet, but I will say it, AB InBev. So you have Bud Light, you have Mick Ultra, you have Stella, three of I really love two of those. Can't stand Mick Ultra, but it is for, you know, whoever it is for. And they, they do their thing. Fastest so growing you, beer brand in the country, my friend. And that's fine. More <laughs> more power to them. I know a lot of people that drink it. And if, it, I'm, if I'm handed one, believe me, I'm going to drink it. But you're, I'm more you're of a, fitness, a Bud. You're, you're a fitness-minded guy. I'm more of a Bud Light guy. Let's be, okay. I, I'll, I'll be honest with myself and with you, Josh. Don't worry. Um, Fair enough. But combining beer and sports, I mean that's just got to be the best job in the world, right? Like what, what, how, yeah. how did the two things not go more hand in hand than, Hey, you want to watch the game? Sure. I'll bring a six pack, <laughs> right? Like it's so yeah. perfect. How much fun was it working with this type of company? Uh, that was great. I mean that, yeah, you, you couldn't find a, a, a better connection. Um, not only was it inherently a great match, but the fact that AB InBev are such uh, savvy, enthusiastic marketers and their willingness to do anything, really, it set up the table pretty well. And after a couple years in, uh, some of my closest collaborators and I, we just found this sweet spot and we ran with it. And the client kept pushing us in that direction and kept <laughs> going for it. And uh, it was incre- it was exhilarating and liberating. And uh, from a creative aspect, just you couldn't ask for anything more in terms of opening up the aperture of your mind. And whatever was spit out. Yep. We, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not let's that crazy. Try it. Yeah, let's, let's try, it. try it. I do <laughs> love it. And so during the um, the whole Dilly Dilly craze a couple of years ago, uh, still say it every once in a while when we're at parties, don't worry. Um, the Philly Philly came out. So as I said before, I'm not a very big fan of the Eagles, but every time for the last like two years that I've driven into Philadelphia, that sign is still there. Yeah. So I hope you're getting paid uh, every time someone <laughs> sees it. I don't know, penny here, penny there. There's enough people on 95. How how easy was that one, right? Especially with the Philly special and everything ongoing there. You know how how easy was that connection with the Dilly Dilly and them winning the Super Bowl? Unfortunately, against your your Patriots. 
So yeah, like, like well, yeah, no, just, just wanted to remind you one more time, but um, yeah, like what was that like? And, and again, like did, who just was like, why don't we just say Philly Philly? Like how, how awesome is that? So um, we're going to get into some element of the secret sauce here, um, which you're, you're probing towards. But um, on one hand, it's really obvious and really easy, right? And you set yourself up to be able to take advantage of th- those sort of things. But, but the genesis of that entire connection was just the fact that um, really one of, my, one of my buddies over at, at Weber Shanwick was... Uh, just monitoring conversations of Eagles fans on social media so closely. And he noticed that Lane Johnson happened to say mm-hmm. in a random training camp practice, hey, you know what? If we win the Super Bowl, I'm going to buy the entire city a beer. So a throwaway line, but we were listening closely enough to take advantage of that. So we immediately tweeted at Lane, you know what? If you win it, the beer's on us. Philly, Philly. So uh, it was there in the universe and so mm-hmm. easy to connect the dots, but we needed a spark and, and the spark was Lane and the other spark was us paying attention. So mm-hmm. um, you have to plan far ahead enough to know who you are as a brand, but you have to be nimble enough to act when the opportunity is there and to pounce on it, as I'm sure Gary V and others would, would, would tell you. Uh, but that's how Philly Philly was born and we just kept it alive. And at the time, the Eagles were a 50 to one shot to win the Super Bowl going into the season. And then, and then Carson Wentz goes down in, in mm-hmm. December. And part of us was like, you know, few we're up, we're off the hook. <laughs> but, um, but then they kept winning and, and, mm-hmm. and we rallied behind it. So um, along the way, we figured out how to raise the stakes, um, how to be a part of the send off to the Super Bowl, how to be a part of the parade itself. And how to make that parade day just a totally Bud Light owned Philly Philly sub branded day, uh, but it all began with that with that spark. If we weren't paying attention, this never would have happened. Yeah, and I think it's again, it's paying attention. I think that's so important, especially from the public relations side, being from the media side yourself, and really understanding how those how those conversations come about and authentically being like, yeah, you know, shoot, beer's on us. We are Bud Light, right? We're only like the partner of the NFL in some capacity, but. I think it is great that you say, you know, it's it's the paying attention aspect yeah. because I'm sure there's a lot of things that get said and people just kind of, as you said, it's a throwaway line and no one cares, but it can spark a little bit of a conversation and get that kind of started up. And as you said, I mean, they were 50 to one. You guys could have taken that bet, then hedged along the way and you could have made sure. your money in some capacity. And you guys obviously did. But I think it's just so fantastic just want to remind everyone the falcons did have first and goal from the two we're not able to punch it in the eagles end up winning i think that's the wild card right the divisional round that one made me pretty angry but i do love the campaign and so how when speaking with uh you know your the the team at bud light i'm assuming you know either the eagles or the nfl has to be in there in, in some capacity like how do you how do you pitch something like that guys we got it we got it yeah philly philly it's like what are you talking like? How do you then go about giving that to to your partners and and not making it sound just like you know the name of the city? We're gonna say it twice. You know what I mean? Like, how do you make it so it's enticing and people actually are gonna be like, oh wait, that is a good idea. Yeah, I, I know it, it. It sounds trite, perhaps, but man, it, it's that trust in your partners. Uh, they know where our heads are at. We know where their heads are at, and we also know that we're comfortable enough working with their other agencies and giving them credit. I mean, Whiting Kennedy came up with a dilly dilly campaign. We're just living off of, 
of their brilliance there um, and help fuel Philly Philly along the way with us with, with the incredible creative that they produced. Uh, but it's the fact that we're in the same room with these guys all the time and we're constantly throwing that stuff out. And we know what's crazy and what's not. Uh, but we also know that sort of the saying within a lot of agencies and also within AB is, um, hey, give us, give us a bunch of ideas that are going to work and then give us one idea that would get you fired. <laughs> and so it's like, it's the invitation to push the envelope. I like that. And shout out to them. It sounds like, again, combining beer and sports, it just does not sound like it can get any better than that. I know Bud Light, some people are snobs about it, but it's my favorite, man. It's it's just the best. There's something yeah. about it that's just the best, and I do love it. So now, now I don't want to talk about the Eagles anymore. We can get out of Philadelphia, thankfully. Let's go to Cleveland. This story is fantastic. As I told you before, I called my buddy up before this. He's working from home, so don't worry anybody out there listening. It's not a big deal. Shout out to my good buddy, Derek Rampula. He's going to be in my wedding. So him and his his wife will be out here pretty soon, too. So in Cleveland, the 2018 season, correct? This is the yep. 2018 season. Uh, 2017, the, the Browns don't win a single game. Oh, in 16. It was pretty sad. You guys came up with the idea for the victory fridge. I have a picture with the victory fridge. It was a stop along the way that we had to go to when I went to Cleveland. I think if I'm not mistaken, it was somewhere in the preseason. It started to get talked about and then they were implemented into bars. So again, I called my friend. I was like, hey, man, like, what do you remember like this? He said when they got implemented, they would only go to bars that had the victory fridge because they knew there was a chance one day that they'd be able to open it up and drink a free beer, which I think, so whatever you guys did, it was incredible. How does this idea come about the Bud Light victory fridge, knowing that the Browns just went 0 and 16. It's like first victory. All right. You guys can open it up. Everyone has a beer on us. How, again, how is this the one idea that's going to get you fired? (laughs) That one actually, uh, no, that was just a magical great idea. <laughs> that, that, that wasn't uh, going to get us fired. No, uh, no, it's it's another example of uh, preparation and uh, paying attention. So, one exercise that I really emphasize with my team was going into each NFL season. Let's fig- let's map out what we feel like the big fan oriented storylines might be. So we, we just plot them out like you would see on any kind of whiteboard mm-hmm. or diagram. And we just figured, okay, like which of these five teams feel like they might do something kind of cool or different? Which fan base do we particularly love? Um, you sort of see the same ones pop mm-hmm. up here and there, but you also want to... I'm sorry, I need to stop you there. One thing a team might do that's cool is the Browns will win a game. Right. Let's just, let's just, I love how you put that very, right. very lightly, but right. I wanted right. to kind of make it a little more right. blunt. So, so you begin that, that exercise with all these lofty um, aspirations for these teams and you wind up with, well, you know, there's also this one story in Cleveland. Um, so we had them in our, our, our broad map of what the season could look like for Bud Light in, in an activation and marketing standpoint. And as we were presenting that to the client, he's like, you know, I just got off the phone with the Browns and I, we, we were at a summit last week and they're kind of uh, frisky. They're feeling like let's lean into Owen 16 a little bit. And so it snowballed and he's like, why don't you come back and what do you got for Owen 16? And we had three or four ideas, um, and I, I got to give credit to my, my good friend, uh, Jason Bellinger, who's still at Weber Shanwick, uh, a brilliant kind of twisted mind, also a Bostonian, so good stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he uh, really had that initial spark, and he and I kind of 
massaged it and, and built it in, into what it became as, as, a, as a full idea. And next thing you know, uh, I'm on a plane to Cleveland presenting to the CMO of the Browns with the client <laughs> about this idea. And, and, the, and the CMO began that meeting with the license of, hey, you know what? We're not going to run away from Rowan 16. We have to own it. So let's do it. And, and, and that's how it began. Uh, then it was three months of incredible execution planning by, by the, our full team and our, and our client. And you see that, I think that's where you see um, AB InBev really shine. From an operations standpoint, mm -hmm. what they can do, um, how they can activate on the ground is beyond anything I've ever seen. And, and they, the deliveries of, of the, the fridges and the stocking them and, and making sure that everything was lining up with the bars they got that stuff under control and, and it just allows us to focus on the, on the creative and, and the media side of it. And it was very creative to say the least. And, yeah. and I think it's also a testament to the NFL, right? This doesn't happen. You, you don't get the incredible response you do if it's not the NFL, because the NFL, while every, you know, there's 32 teams, meaning there's, I don't know, 20, whatever cities or 30 cities, however it may be, you can, you know, the Browns are relevant on a national stage because it's the NFL because there's yep. only 16 games a year and you guys are able to create something like this and run with it, which I think is incredible because again, here in New Jersey, we cared about it. We were all rooting. We have two friends that live in Cleveland more now because we go there occasionally and we were all rooting for them. I think I told you I was actually in Cleveland the second week, second, second week of the year when they played the saints. And if I'm not mistaken, they tied or they lost on a last second field goal. I, we were so excited. We were there. We thought it was going to happen with us there. Unfortunately, it did not because the Browns were, are still the Browns. Never forget that. Take the under. Absolutely take the under because of the Browns. But yeah. it's just it was so funny when we were there in the city and we it was literally a stop. We, my buddy's like, all right, you're here. It's a Thursday night. We got to go to this bar because they have a victory fridge. And it was that organic. That was the craziest yeah. part to me. So did you think it was going to turn into what it did? We didn't really, you, know, you never know. You, you just hope that it would. Um, but we saw pretty quickly the potential and we were a bit blown away by that and also a bit frightened by it. Uh, but um, yeah, so obviously, so they tied their first two games of the season. Like who begins the season with yeah. two ties? It never happens. And immediately we had to reinforce that this was not a tie fridge. It's a nope. victory fridge. So yeah, ties don't count. So um I don't want to spook you out with your wedding coming up, but I remember week two, I was at my cousin's wedding. I actually officiated that wedding. I was the, I was, I was the officiant. Um, the wedding itself was on a Sunday for week two. And the entire time, obviously my focus is on the wedding, but my phone is blowing up. Like this is going to happen. And I'm like, no, please not this week. <laughs> you know, please, please wait till week three. Um, and then week three was a Thursday game against the jets. We always thought, that that might be the first game where they had a legit shot. They opened at they opened with Pittsburgh and New Orleans, so mm -hmm. we thought they'd probably go zero and two. Um, but the Jets gave them a shot. So I was in Cleveland for that game. I, I went to the game, and then um, which, by the way, Jets were winning at the half, mm -hmm. and the place Baker comes dead. in. Yep. Places it's getting a little like the fans are getting a little restless. You could see like, hey, if we lose to the Jets, are we going to get a win? Um, and Baker comes in and then the rest is history. Then I, I hightailed over to the Barley House bar downtown. And that scene was just unbelievable. The place is shaking. Um, everybody's chanting at the fridge that's sitting right there in the front of the bar. Um, every TV crew in the city is, is there. Um, we're funneling photos wherever we can. No one has cell service. We're getting bodied every direction. Uh, but 
And you know what? When the beer came out, it was actually pretty orderly, and uh, it was. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it, yeah, the, I think of all cities who can just do that in a very respectful fashion. And thank God for the folks of Cleveland. Maybe not Philly, New York, or Boston uh, would react in the same no, way. No, no, far, far from it. And that's the thing. Cleveland always gets a bad rap. I go there once a year. I love the place. It's incredible. Great. And one yeah. thing I can say is, it, in, in my opinion, at least all the cities that I've been to, there isn't a more organic, again, going back to that word, an organic city that loves yeah. beer as much as they do. That is one thing I will say. They are... They're, they're great at drinking a lot of talent there that can, they can put it away. So I think again, it's just that it's the, it's the leaning into the Owen 16. It's the, Hey, we don't really know when they're going to win. Hey, this city loves to drink. Let's give them something extra to do. What, how, like how long, at what point is it diminishing returns though? Were you worried that if they lost to the jets and it's like week 10, it's like, all right, victory fridge. Like we get it. Like now this is kind of us like kind of poking and prodding them every week. So was hoping, understanding that you wanted it to go for a period of time, but at what point would it have been like kind of uncomfortable for you guys, especially if they went 0-16 again? I mean, that's a whole nother story, but week 12, week 13, that probably would have yeah. got real like, ah. Yeah, um, I think week four. <laughs> no, oh, <but> okay. uh, <laughs> no, we um, we had those discussions a lot internally. So again, as you said, I think every great great idea comes from somebody willing to take some kind of risk. Our job is often to accept that risk, but mitigate it uh, and, and and anticipate it. So we did know that it could really lead down a, a dark spiral for the fan base. So the first thing was beer, the life cycle of beer is about 28 days. So beers in the fridge would have to be recycled once a month. So we thought, okay, at least the, if it goes four weeks, we can do a fun show of taking out the beer, putting in new beer. Okay. You know, the grand locking and unlocking yeah. under, under supervision of, of the beers. Like Stanley Cup, they have their white gloves <laughs> exactly. on and everything. Gloves, right. Yeah, that would have been fun. Yeah. Respect the beer. Uh, so that would that would have been fun. Um, it would have been less fun doing it a second time. But I think that um, the idea came from keeping the fans first and celebrating fandom. It was never meant to make fun of those guys. So it had to stay positive. And we we had thoughts about how we could at least try to reward and celebrate fans along the way if the team didn't come through and and put those into motion. Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't want that. I, we really wanted them to uh, to win as, as soon as possible. Absolutely. And yeah, again, it's if it's it's almost kind of like you're mocking them again. It's week right. 12, 13. It's like, yeah, we get it. It's a victory fridge and we haven't won in 30 whatever games at this point. Not a, not a great look for Bud Light. And it's kind of, you know, that whole like die a hero, live long enough to see yourself become a villain kind of thing where yep. the media would have been great in the beginning. And towards yep. the end, it might not have been that uh, fantastic. And and so you said Bud Light is fantastic. AB Bev is awesome to work with because of the implementation. And I know if I'm not mistaken, there was kind of someone on the on the on the trigger where when they did win all the fridges unlocked if i'm not mistaken so what is it like from your standpoint on the media side trying to implement this idea into letting people again it's it's in cleveland but this is a national phenomenon for the first three or four weeks you know potentially three or four weeks of the season yeah um again it's 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 a it's due to a, a great team that's prepared and, and diligent. So we collected assets along the way, photos, video assets of the de delivery, um, just some, some access to, to some super fans um, and, and made sure we're seeding that out to media. But I will say the most successful unanticipated element of it is, was we just said, Hey, on a lark, who are some of the, 
most well-known Browns fans that are sprinkled across the country, just relocated. We thought of former players like Joe Thomas, Andrew Hawkins, you know, guys with good platforms. But we also uh, thought of uh, the wrestler, The Miz. Um, and I'm not, not a huge WWE guy, but those that are were like, yeah, this guy, like former champion, people love him. He's from Cleveland. And that was part of his identity. Um, lives in uh, Austin now. So by working with the Browns, we're like, hey, listen, like, do you mind if we co- can you help us contact the Miz and send him a fridge at his house? And we, <laughs> we did. And he he taped his own video of him watching the game in anticipation, screaming at the fridge to open. And then it did open remotely. Yes, it was remote, a remote Wi-Fi trigger. So he's he posts a video of him at his home and you see the chains come down and he rejoices in full throat. And like that became like the most viral element of the entire thing was super fan just being a fan. So awesome. Yeah, you just you just you just try to push as many right buttons as possible and 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 see and feed and seed um, as many assets as you can to media. So always be in in conversation with them. We were capturing photos in real time from the bar. Uh, We had a photo crew there. We had a video crew there. All that stuff is going out as fast as it can at, you know, three in the morning after mm-hmm. the game. And, uh, you know, morning shows utilized it and other national media utilized it. So it, it was it was worth it. It is awesome. And if I'm not mistaken, it was like a it was a Thursday night game, right? It was. So that gave it like all, like everyone in the NFL. There's only one game on. What game were you watching? Right. It's one thing if it's Sunday at one o'clock, but it, I think it's Correct. even cooler that it was Thursday night. You know, then you can kind of see the pictures of. Cleveland really getting at it that Thursday night. How many people yeah. didn't go to work the next day? Cause they got so much free Bud Light shout out them. Um, so I, I do love it. I just think it's such a cool, cool opportunity. And I think you guys absolutely killed it. I mean, how hard is it to say like, Hey, you guys win a game, we give you free beer, but it's the way you did it. And the way you went about it, I think again, is just so, so cool. So um, you're no longer with Weber Shamlick. You have started your own thing. You're doing a little consulting now, doing your own thing, as I said, uh, a little bit earlier. So what are you doing and how are you taking all these incredible ideas that are up in your brain and, and helping others, you know, be able to, to help themselves essentially to kind of create their own ideas and do their own thing. So that way Bud Light might come calling to them with, uh, with the victory fridge in, in the future. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, one of the great things about, working for large agencies and working for for mega clients is the the force of the infrastructure behind you and the people you get to work with and and all of that is incredibly rewarding um but it on some level i i wondered if there was a way for me to get closer directly to content creators to lower level athletes to maybe teams who don't have the ability to tap into a bud light at, at the expense and level that that NFL teams do. Uh, and I thought that I could offer that resource uh, individually to the, to these people. And, and so that's, that's what I've uh, embarked on was sort of this individual consultant to help uh, personalities really establish what they stand for as individuals, uh, brands, figure out brands they like brands who match up with, with their own values and see if I could be the spark to pair them and make them attractive uh, to those brand partnerships um, and, the, and the team level, really understanding that, hey, listen, probably in your organization, you don't have someone who's dedicating all this time for creative marketing thoughts and, and, and how do we engage fans in a totally different way. 
what if we partnered and you just at an individual level, I gave you that kind of thinking. So that, that was the impetus. Um, I love being a little closer directly uh, to those folks. Um, and while the buffer of large agencies and large clients uh, gives you great assets, it also makes you maybe one or two degrees removed sometimes directly from, from having an impact with, with the athletes or the creators themselves. I think it's awesome, man. And just being able to kind of you know, roll your sleeves up a little bit more, for lack yeah. of a better term, and really help. You know, it's one thing to help the Eagles or the Cleveland Browns. I think they're going to be fine no matter what, right. uh, considering, you know, they're part of the machine that is the NFL. But it's kind of cool that you're able now to kind of look and, and help some of these littler guys, for lack of a better term, these littler guys and girls who are doing this out of passion, doing it out of love. They're not making the millions and billions of dollars that the NFL comes with, but you're still able to lend those expertise where you can kind of lean back and say, hey, you know, Under Armour, yeah, I was there for a couple of years. I might have helped them do a couple of things. Uh, you know that Bud Light fridge? You want to talk about it for 15 minutes? Because it's a pretty cool conversation. So <laughs> I think it is awesome. And so with this new venture that you have, like what, how, what types of people, what types of clients? I know you said a little bit smaller, but who are you? really going after and how are you finding these relationships and new clients to allow your expertise to really shine? Yeah. Um, leaning on my, my network of professional friends, which I think has been invaluable in normal times, but also now that we're all so separated physically that really, uh, rises to the top of, I think really valuable resources. I, and then just, uh, following my curiosity, um, knowing areas that I wanted to explore when I was at the agencies and maybe just didn't have a chance to because there was a client conflict or they weren't big enough. Uh, so uh, I found that I, I really do like smaller groups uh, who have a startup mentality. And if I can lend a creative marketing capability to an existing quasi agency team of, 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 of folks, I, I, that, that's one sector. And also just, yeah, like uh, athletes who aren't having brands, you know, uh, slam on their, mm -hmm. knock on their doors. Um, see if if I can be a spark for them to 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 kind of extract some more things about their personality or about their post career aspirations. Uh, so it's finding those people through my network um, and just through my own leads and curiosity. Um, and then that's kind of where how I piece it together so far. It's it's a work in progress, but it's been pretty cool. Uh, definitely been thrown a curveball with with our current world. But uh, I still really love the conversations with people who are just starting out um, in building their brand as a smaller company or as an athlete in a lower profile sport. Well, hopefully, I mean, it seems like you've been able to hit the curveball relatively well this point, up, up until this point of your career. So I'm sure you're going to be just fine coming out of this and absolutely crushing it. And again, I think it's awesome now that you're really able to help some of these smaller brands. Last question, I guess, on that side, how... Um, What's it like having to scale kind of your thoughts back a little bit, understanding before it's like, oh, AB InBev, I mean, they practically print money. Like who's going <laughs> to, yeah. well, beer is one of the number one selling things during all time, right? Whether it's good or bad. How do you then kind of, how do you try and lean down, I guess, these ideas, like, and make sure that a, a smaller company that might not have the millions of dollars of revenue or marketing can still be able sure. to go out there and really make a difference within their their communities and within their marketing efforts? Yeah, I, I think that most most good ideas do have elements of scale to them. Uh, so at, at, a, at a core level, I don't think they the expensive idea isn't always the best idea, and oftentimes mm -hmm. the the most nimble uh, idea can can be the winner. Uh, but 
it, it is just knowing how far these smaller folks can go. I do feel confident that I can still give them a really creative, fun, interesting way to uh, to connect with their fans without spending a lot of money. Um, I'll go back to Cleveland, for example. This is an example at Weber Shanwick, but um, there was a similar giveaway with uh, with Tums when when LeBron James left. So they Tums committed to giving you know, free antacid to uh, to fans who are suffering heartburn. It wasn't really an expensive idea. Um, it didn't capture the attention of the nation like the Victory Fridge did, but it did uh, really own the local conversation for for a bit of a life cycle. It, it made fans excited. Um, required no official affiliation with LeBron. Mm-hmm. It required no real upfront spend. It was just an announcement that we're going to do this thing. Um, and I also think that um, you can be responsible, but still when a client sees an idea, gain momentum, they tend to find more money than you thought they had. Uh, and yep. and, and they'll, they'll double down and invest in that. I love it. Josh, this has been absolutely incredible. Josh Green, Creative Marketing and earned media specialist, inventor, creator of Philly Philly, inventor, creator of the Bud Light Victory Fridge. Josh, this has been incredible. Thanks so much for your time, man. Thank you. It was great. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Josh Green. As I said, it was so cool getting to hear about the Bud Light Victory Fridge and understanding what he's done, how he did it, the ifs, ands, and buts around it, I think was absolutely fantastic, and everything else he's done in his career. Dude's not messing around. He's been doing it for a long time. Now he's doing going on his own a little bit, getting to kind of work with some of the people he wants to work with, so we do appreciate Josh there. So please make sure to follow him on all of his socials. Everything is in the show notes. Please make sure to give us a five-star review on Apple, on iTunes, on Spotify. Smash the subscribe button on YouTube. That would be fantastic. And without further ado, I'll let you get back to your day. So thank you so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day.